Hi everyone, the room will start in around 10 minutes, so we still have some time to join, um, like some time until we start, but welcome everyone. Um, and yeah, we will have a talk um, from Dr. Bennett from Oxford University. Uh, who will share a new treatment target for chronic pain. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Hart, Dean, Anar. Hi, Wisdom. Do you want to come up or just listen? I'll just invite you. <clears throat> Welcome. This will be an. How are you today? Good morning, Katarina. Doing okay. Hey, Wisdom. Hi, Katie. Hey. Hi, Katie. Do you want to join us on stage? Welcome. Hi, Nora. 
You need to clap out, I heard. I see. <laughs> How are you? Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you, Katrina. Welcome. Today, uh, we'll have a talk about um, new treatment target for chronic pain from a professor from Oxford University in UK. So, um, yeah, we'll start in around 10 minutes, um, everyone. And, um, yeah, we'll be listening to his talk and then we can ask questions and in the end. So, yeah, it will be a very interesting room and I'm very interesting, interested because I know actually a few people that have chronic pain issues. Um, and um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very important that we, that we come up with better medications. So let's see. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Hi, love. I am okay. How are you? I'm excited for this conversation. Um, I'm not going to lie, it's 2 a.m. in Australia for me, so I don't know how long I will hang around, but I'll definitely listen to the replay. And oh, time zones are so challenging with these talks, but very exciting conversation. And, you know, thank you so much because it's a topic that I'm sure many people would love to hear about. Yeah, well, thank you for coming at 2 a.m. And yeah, I totally understand. Yeah, the time, I'm glad that we have recordings. I have a few people emailing me, after, you know, after they saw what they missed that I should send the recording. So um, all the time. So yeah, it's challenging to get the time especially between Europe and like um, European time zone and then Asia, Australia, it's very challenging to get, um, yeah, to get it lined up. It's almost impossible. So um, yeah, but gladly we have the recording. So <laughs> hi everyone. We'll start in around seven minutes. Uh, thank you for coming. And um yeah, it will be a really interesting room. So feel free to hang out with us a little bit. Yes, and thank you again, it's Katie. Um, thank you, Katarina, for always organizing these amazing conversations with amazing scientists. Um, and I will definitely, and I encourage everyone else to listen to replays and share the room. And as I said, I might, I'm going to listen in and when I, um, am going to sleep, I'll move myself to the audience, but I'm very excited for this conversation. And I really encourage everyone to invite your friends to the room. Many people in the world with their different experiences, um, are experiencing chronic pain, so, you know, such a beautiful, amazing topic that I'd love to hear more about. Love you. 
Yeah, thank you, Katie. That's so nice of you. Um, um, yeah, I agree. It's it's a very important topic. A lot of people are suffering from chronic pain, and we don't really have good medicine that doesn't, at the same time, create more problems such as addiction. So, um, yeah, this this is really important. I want to support this type of work as much as you know I can, and in my in our little way, we're supporting. <laughs> to make awareness what's out there and hopefully um yeah we make a lot of progress in these fields that are so important so thanks everyone for being here to support and um yeah we'll start in a few minutes Hi, Nazli, hi, LT, and Jenny, Mardi, Yazar, Susan, and Shank, Lance. Thank you for coming. We'll start in around four minutes. So um, in the meantime, feel free to um, check out the paper link that's uh, pinned on top of the room um, um, to read up a few are interested <laughs> in the meantime and um, yeah we'll start soon thank you Hey, Dr. Mariam, do you want to join us on stage? Welcome. How are you today? Hey, guys. I'm good, thanks. How are you all? Good, good. Thank you. Thanks for coming. 
Yeah, lucky me, it's, it's good timing today. Yeah, we just spoke about, you know, the different time zones and how it's so hard to um, to create a schedule that works for everyone. It's almost impossible, but we cover now a few different time zones, usually every week. So I hope everyone gets a chance to be here while it's happening um, once in a while. So. I'm glad it worked yeah. out today. Hi, Jamie. How are you today? Hi, Katerina. I'm very well, thank you. How's your day going so far? Good, good. Thank you. Oh, and there's Dave. How are you today? Thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Right, I'm not used to this format, but I seem to be in, which is great. Yes, you are <laughs> in. We can hear you. Everything is perfect. So you can... Yeah, thank you for, you know, making this club possible so, and joining. It's very nice of you. Thank you. Please go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Uh, do you want me to, so if I'm going to talk through this work, do you want me to share, is there a way of sharing slides or showing slides, or I can just talk it through verbally? Uh, yes. Uh, do you want to, so we have to share them as a link. Do you want to okay. send them to me really quick? And while okay. I'll, we have a, you know, I'll introduce you to the crowd and in yeah, the meantime, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll upload it and make it into a link. So, um, yeah, it just takes me a couple of minutes, so. Yeah, no worries. Sure. I'm sending. Hi, it's Katie. I just wanted to say um, welcome, Dr. Bennett. Um, we have, if you can see at the top of the room, welcome to Clubhouse firstly, and thank you so much for coming, being a part of the Science Society, and thank you, Katerina, for inviting you as well. Um, if you can see, if you go to the top of the screen, there is... Um, a link um, if you can like we can all click on that everyone that is in this space what we call a room can click on that which is a link to your paper but if you do have a um, slideshow or PowerPoint um, as Katarina said you can send it to her and we can also um, link to that as well and we can follow through that way but um, we just love to hear your science and ask questions and, you know, what an amazing opportunity to speak to such a respected scientist as yourself. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Katrina, I sent you the slides. Did you get them or I can just start on the paper? Uh, I'm, I'm waiting, but um, it's fine. I'll introduce you and then usually Jamie will ask like a couple of general questions and in those minutes i guess the email will arrive and i'll 
you know. Yeah, sure. And if not, I'll just click on the link and we can talk. I'll just talk you verbally through the paper and uh, the, okay. the figures will work just fine. So, um, yeah, let's start on that basis. Okay, perfect. So, uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society. And of course, a special thanks to you, um, Dave. And um, let me introduce you to our guest speaker uh, before we start, uh, Dr. David Bennett. Um, he um, received his Bachelor in Science at the United Medical and Dental School, um, um, Guys and Thomas, and um, he did his PhD in the Department of Physiology, the United Medical and Dental Schools of Guys and St. Thomas, and his MBBS in Pathology, Obstetrics, and Gynecology clinical pharmacology, medicine and surgery, also at the United Medical and Dental Schools of Guys and Thomas. And um, the, his areas of interest are um, preventing peripheral nervous system injury and promoting its repair. So he, um, Dr. Bennett is focusing on understanding how the peripheral nervous system responds to injury and um, to promote effective repair and prevent the development of adverse effects such as neuropathic pain. And he uses many different techniques uh, to um, study it. Um, and he's also a member of the London Pain Consortium and um, he leads Dolor Risk at Horizon Initiative and um, that has 11 participating centers, which inv are investigating the risk factors and determinants of neuropathic pain. And he was awarded an honorary school professorship at the University of Aarhus in 2019. Um, yeah, and currently he's a professor of neurology and neurobiology and head of the vision of clinical neurology at the Northfield Department of Clinical Neuroscience at the University of Oxford. So yeah, we are very honored to having you here today. And um, yeah, as I said, if it's okay with you, Jamie will ask you a couple of questions and then, um, yeah, and then we get into your science. Thank you. Sounds good. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Um... That is a really impressive range of uh, topics that you've managed to cover. Wow, that's quite humbling to hear that. Um, first of all, um, in the Science Society, we welcome you officially. And um, what we like to know is, has become a, a favourite topic, a personal favourite of mine, when we ask you, where did you first get an interest in science and at what time in your life? And if you have any um, stories like, like that you would wish to share with us because we always find that incredibly engaging and let us know the, the man behind the person behind the science what got you into science in the first place right, okay um yeah so uh, it sounds a bit dull but i think i was always interested in science from a from a very young age um and uh, just always enjoyed it at school um, I had my, I was given a chemistry set at the, about the age of nine, which caused kind of some chaos in my house when I uh, spilled various chemicals that then caused terrible stains on my carpet. Uh, 
that my mum complained about. And so I always like doing experiments and um, I always liked kind of the idea of testing new vistas of knowledge, which is I, I thought science was all about. Um, I kind of, I suppose biographically, I kind of couldn't decide whether I wanted to do a pure science degree or medicine. Um, interestingly, I kind of did a bit of work experience and I, from my work experience, I got sent to a really, really dull lab that was testing water around the UK for bacteria. And that kind of put me off science a bit, actually, because it, it seemed very repetitive and process driven and not at all creative. So I ended up doing medicine, um, partly because I like the people side of medicine. And then um, actually kind of the way I really got back into experimental science was slightly accidental. Uh, I, um, in, in the UK, uh, medics often do an intercalated kind of specialist science degree in the middle of their medical degree. And I did one in neuroscience. And I worked with a couple of very, I'm sure you hear this story a lot, very inspirational mentors, Steve McMahon and Pat Wall. Um, and I uh, kind of really enjoyed kind of actually doing proper lab neuroscience at that time. And then actually uh, it was pure chance. So Steve McMahon was, uh, who was kind of supervising that science work, was meant to go and work in Genentech. Um, this is kind of in the early 90s um, to do a project there in San Francisco. His wife um, became pregnant and she was like, I don't want you going to San Francisco for the summer. And so he said to me, uh, why don't you go in my place and you can kind of go and work at Genentech for a couple of months. It'll be a good way to spend your summer. Uh, and that's what I did. And I had a fantastic time working in Genentech, which was doing some very exciting work on neurotrophins and growth factor receptors. Um, that got me hooked on uh, experimental science. Uh, and when I came back, the medical school said, we want to set up an MD-PhD scheme. How about we fund you to do a PhD? Uh, and that's exactly what I did. Um, I didn't really look back from there. I really enjoyed uh, kind of neuroscience. Um, I did go back and finish medicine and then I kind of trained as a neurologist, but I always knew I was going to go back and set up my own lab. Um, and that's what I did. So I guess the interest was there from a very early age and then sparked off by some great mentors. No, that is actually um, a, a great story. Um, you wouldn't actually believe how many times um, we, we love hearing that curiosity is what's driven a person. And it can sometimes be this, that, that's what's actually so remarkable is the simplest things can spark on such a fascination. And with regards to you saying the, the mentor thing is a story, I, I don't think we can get tired of hearing about fantastic mentors that have changed people's lives. It's such a great thing. Um, and lastly, um, so what is it that's got you into this specific field of the paper that you're about to talk uh, with us today? Is there a story behind that? What got you to this uh, point? I, I, actually, in some ways, in the sense that um, when I was doing that neuroscience degree, you know, back in 1992 or whenever it was, seems like a long time ago now, um, I, I really found the lectures on pain very interesting. And the reason I found it interesting was for a number of reasons. Um, the, the circuitry around pain is incredibly plastic. And I really found that plasticity very, very interesting. Um, it could be mediated from the terminals of sensory nerves in the skin to the spinal cord, to the thalamus, to the cortex. So it kind of span, it seemed to span the whole of the nervous system. 
um, and it involved both neuronal cells and non-neuronal cells and inflammatory cells. So I really found it an in incredible model system to understand plasticity within the nervous system. Uh, that's number one. And then number two, of course, it's incredibly clinically important. So I really like the fact that the basic neurobiology seemed really interesting because it was changed so much. Uh, and then also it was a very important clinical problem. So I have to say, I kind of got hooked on pain from my very earliest experiences of neuroscience. And I'm one of those people I've, you know, always been interested in the pain field and my lab has always had a focus on that. Um, so I, I have an interest in the topic and then I kind of have brought various techniques to bear on that interest rather than being someone that delivers a technique, then kind of applies that to different fields. I've always been in, interested in the topic of pain and tried to study that in a very multidisciplinary manner. That's incredible and, and fascinating, and it actually warms us up quite nicely. Um, thank you very much for your answers. We really appreciate it. And um, now, whenever you're ready, just relax and get into your talk, and we're all ears. Thank you. Okay, great. So, Katrina, I don't know if the slides have come through. If not, it's fine. I'm just going to work from the paper. Uh, I didn't I didn't receive it, um, so if it's no, okay good to use the paper. <laughs> Sorry about yeah. that. No, 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 that's fine. I, I wonder, actually, maybe they're too big and they're getting stuck in NYU or some email server. Uh, so let's just work on the on the paper and I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the background. Right. So I've said I'm interested in in pain. And one of the interesting things about pain is tremendous inter individual differences. Um, and uh, some of actually some of those individual differences um, will affect all of us in this room. So gender has a big uh, impact on the way you uh, perceive pain. Um, and also genetics has an impact. And that's part, part, not all, but part of that individual variation in how we perceive pain is determined by a genetic makeup. And the data from that is um, from a number of uh, pieces of evidence um, is partly from twin, traditional twin studies. And if you compare monozygotic and dizygotic twins, you can see that certain aspects of pain are really quite heritable. It does depend on exactly what you're looking at. And that's because pain is not one entity. So obviously pain is a uh, perception that's triggered uh, could be triggered by a number of different stimuli, whether they're noxious thermal, whether they're noxious uh, mechanical, um, whether they're chemicals. There are lots of different things uh, that can trigger the sensation of pain. Um, and so the genetics as to how heritable our perception of pain is actually depends on the sensory uh, modality, whether it's thermal, chemical or mechanical. And so I've been interested in understanding pain, and obviously human genetics is one way you can get insights into that. And uh, we set up a collaboration in Colombia, uh, and actually, again, it was just to give you the history of that, it was a bit accidental as to how this came about. And it was because um, we were, uh, I was interested in uh, genetic variants in iron channels, and actually, there was a very large family in Colombia uh, where they had a monogenic pain disorder, uh, and that was uh, kind of inherited in an autosomal dominant manner. Um, and these uh, family members that were affected would get very severe truncal pain and uh, triggered by colds and becoming hungry. And it was very poorly understood until uh, with collaborators in UCL, we did the genetic linkage, 
um, and we, we found linkage uh, to a variant in an iron channel TRPA1. Um, and that was a story that was published in Neuron back in 2020. But it kind of triggered off this, I went to, to study that family. I went to Medellin, um, which is a very interesting town in Colombia, uh, where we uh, kind of neurologically uh, went, we met the family, we, we tried to understand what was going on in the sensory nervous system and why we were getting their pain state. And we worked out that they had this gain of function variant in TRPA1. Um, and TRPA1 is, uh, is a... Uh, iron channel that responds to environmental irritants, both extreme cold, but also irritants such as mustard oil. And uh, they, they, this channel was becoming hypersensitive and driving this pain state in this family. And when we went over to um, Medellin in Colombia um, and started collaboration both with local uh, scientists in Medellin, but also Andres Ruiz Linares, who's on this current paper, and we they, they were part of a big study, which was trying to understand the uh, using the fact that in, in Latin America, you have this genetic mixture of Native American populations, immigrant European populations, and also African populations, all admixed. And um, they were actually part of a big project across all of South America, trying to understand the genetic basis of physical attributes. Um, and they were finding that the, this was quite a powerful um, genetic approach. And we said, well, look, actually at the same time as kind of looking at visible attributes such as skin color uh, well we could study pain and try and understand more about the genetics of pain so actually this kind of collaboration dates right the way back to 2010 where we kind of came to this realization that we could work together to understand more about the genetic basis of pain and uh, we set up a, a protocol using quantitative sensory testing. And all, all that really means is that's a flash word for saying that we give a sensory stimulus and we ask and rate the perception that people perceive in response to that stimulus. But that quantitative sensory testing is helpful because it allows us to quantitate what we're trying to measure and really kind of test the, the pain circuits um, to try and get insight into how they're working. And um, we one aspect of that, and that's kind of the topic of this current paper and kind of comes to figure one um, of the paper, which is to say that pain, pain is interesting uh, in that uh, it, many um, sensations, uh, and for instance, hearing and vision, often if you give a repetitive stimuli, you habituate to it, it becomes less, less noticeable. Actually, pain is the opposite. If you give repeated stimuli that are noxious, um, that, that evoke, uh, stimulate noticeptors, which are those sensory neurons that respond to stimuli that, that may cause damage, actually the pain perception gets bigger. Uh, and um, the idea of, you can kind of give that the technical term, which is wind up, which is if you give a series of repetitive noxious stimuli, actually the pain perception increases during the course of those stimuli. And that's an example of temporal summation. And figure one is just showing the idea that we're giving a repetitive punctate stimulus to the forearm um, and people's pain rating increases. If you compare the rating for the whole train of stimuli, in panel B compared to the sing single stimulus, it goes up and that's a very significant increase. And then panel C um, gives you that idea that I was speaking about is there's this huge individual variation. So although almost all, not all, but almost all people do wind up in that sense that they have more pain perception during the course of stimuli, you can see the degree of that wind up varies massively. Some people it's just a small increase um, in, in pain perception for some people, you know, they're what we call their wind-up ratio, which is the ratio for the 
pain perception, as it were, during the total train of stimuli versus the singular stimulus, um, may be four. Um, so that's a, a massive increase in pain perception. And you could then use modern genetics to harness and try and understand what the basis of that wind up is. And that's exactly what we did. So um, we managed to, so in, in this paper, we're kind of publishing the data from almost a thousand uh, participants, but actually I can tell you, we've gone on and done, I've repeated this on almost um, 2000 now with the same result, um, which is that we ran a genome-wide association study. So those that don't know what that means, uh, what we're doing is we're looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms across the whole of the genome. Um, so in panel D, you've got this thing called a Manhattan plot. We're looking across the whole genome, so all the chromosomes here, which are uh, on, on the x-axis and then the y-axis is the significance. And we try and see, are there particular single nucleotide polymorphisms that associate with our trait of interest? And in this case, that trait is wind up as a measure of temporal summation. And um, you can see um, in uh, kind of chromosome 14, there's this line of dots um, that go up above the red line. The red line is kind of the line we need, use for genome-wide association. And uh, that, that is then shown in more detail in panel E, uh, which is showing that that kind of line of single nucleotide polymorphisms that are associating with uh, the wind-up ratio uh, are all in, um, in a gene or very close to a gene called SLC8A3. And that was of immediate interest to us. And that is because SLC8A3 is a gene that encodes for a sodium calcium exchanger sodium calcium exchanger three. And um, that's shown in a local zoom, what's called a local zoom plot in panel E. And then in panel F, it's showing a kind of a dose response in the sense that the more that you have of the minor allele, that's the rarer allele, uh, the higher uh, the wind up ratio is. And then I guess the other thing just to say verbally, that's kind of not kind of specified on this figure, but I think is uh, an important point, um, comes back to kind of what I was saying about where we started on the genetics. And that's the fact um, that this, the, the most associated uh, single nucleotide polymorphism, uh, it's the one in purple, starting with RS1159, um, is actually pretty much only present in African populations. So if we'd have gone and done traditionally what's often done, which is a, a genome-wide association study just on Caucasian populations, because we've got less genetic variety in those populations, we would have completely missed um, this signal. So it's kind of, and I, I should also say that we, we do see overall that um, ethnicity uh, does play a part in, again, in the way we perceive pain. So this gave us this initial genetic signal, which we thought, you know, kind of this, this was a great finding when we had it, because it immediately seemed to give us insight into um, biology. And I should say, we, th we then went on um, and we uh, actually, we started with this group of almost a thousand. We then repeated that on a completely separate group, which are also recruited in the same way. And we found exactly the same signal, which was very reassuring. Um, and then we worked with Luda Diachenko, who's uh, based in Montreal. And uh, she had a cohort where they'd done wind up in a slightly different way in North America. But if you look at gene level, again, we were founding a nice association at gene level between this gene and the wind-up ratio. So this was a good, this human genetics was a great starting place. And then we wanted to kind of delve down um, into biology. Now, if you look at the kind of both, I, I guess, publicly available data sets, uh, whether they're for human or for rodent, 
uh, we could see that NCX3 was expressed, um, the sodium calcium exchanger was expressed within the nervous system. Um, and we could then look at that in more detail, which is what we did next. So if you've got your PDF open, if you go to figure two, we're now trying to say, okay, so sodium calcium exchanger three, um, where is it expressed in the nervous system? Um, and uh, we were immediately interested in the spinal cord. And the reason kind of we put a lot of focus on the spinal cord in this paper is that there's pre-existing data, actually data from one of my mentors, um, Pat Wall, uh, he had shown that an important part where what uh, kind of important correlate within the nervous system of where this summation of uh, response to noxious stimuli happens, where this windup is taking place, is in the spinal cord. So we thought there's this pre-existing data on electrophysiology of the spinal cord. Let's see, is NCX3 expressed there? And the answer was yes, it is expressed there. Um, and uh, so we looked both kind of panel A, just looking generally at neurons, and we can see uh, the red signal is the, is the RNA scope signal for NCX3. We can see that it's expressed uh, within dorsal horn neurons. We can then try and say which type of dorsal horn neurons. And actually, the answer to that is uh, VGLUT2 is marking excitatory interneurons. GAD67 is marking GABAergic uh, inhibitory interneurons. GLIT2 is marking uh, glycinergic inhibitory interneurons. And it's expressed in all of those um, populations. The expression, um, which is shown in panel E and um, kind of F, is kind of quantifying that. It's somewhat more highly expressed in the deeper laminae of the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Um, and you know, we know that the dorsal horn of the spinal cord is a key part uh, of uh, processing of nociceptive information. And we can see, as I've just said, it's in all of those three uh, different interneuronal um, populations. And the other thing that we did is we if you think about it, what happens is um, if you think about the nociceptive pathway, you have nociceptors that are carrying information about tissue injury from targets such as the skin to the spinal cord. They terminate within the spinal cord. There's then complex circuitry within the spinal cord that processes that information. That involves lots of these different interneuronal populations. And then you have projection neurons that transmit that information up to higher brain centers, such as the parabrachial nucleus and the thalamus. And you then get, you know, ultimately they will project to the cortex and you will get the perception of pain if you've got sufficient activation of that pathway. Um, so an important output of the spinal cord is projection neurons. And we know that FOX2A uh, is a good marker of uh, projection neurons. And we could see that um, NCX3 is also expressed within those FOX2A uh, projection neurons. Again, when we're doing double labeling uh, with NCX3 and FOX2A, and you can see that panels in panels H, I, J and K. So this kind of data was reassuring to show us that the, the gene that we're interested in is expressed within the spinal cord and indeed it's expressed within lots of interneural populations and also projection neurons. I should say um, I'm not saying that this gene is only expressed within the spinal cord. We did see some expression within uh, sensory neuron populations uh, as well and uh, for reasons of time I won't go into that now but we, uh, we can um, discuss that. I don't think that expression in um, sensory neurons is modulating this temporal summation of the wind-up that I'm talking about. It's not where the locus of activity is, um, but it may be interesting for other reasons. So then um, moving on to figure three, 
we we've seen that it's expressed in the spinal cord of mouse. So the question is, does does this gene that we identified in a human genetic study does it have any impact on pain behaviour uh, in the mouse? And uh, luckily, um, André Herschels in uh, Belgium had already created uh, mice which uh, don't express functional um, NCX3. And so in the panels in figure three, there's kind of usually three comparators. There's a wild type, there's a mouse with a heterozygous mutant um, that will be haplo insufficient for this gene, or homozygous mutant will be um, virtually no functional NCX3. And then we can uh, look at pain-related behavior, um, and we can do that in a number of different ways. As I said, there's different modalities. So we can use pinprick to look at mechanical sensation. Um, we can do von Frey, which is also a measure of mechanical sensation, and then look at thermal sensitivity of these mice with Hargreaves or with various hot plates. And we're really looking to see how the animals respond to these various stimuli. And the bottom line is, uh, that didn't change. And maybe that's not so, such a surprise because um, the uh, in the human genetics, this uh, variant in NCX3 only affected temporal summation. It, it didn't relate to any of the other. We had done lots of other different measures of pain in the humans, and they didn't relate to these variants in NCX3 at all. It was just the wind-up ratio. So in a way, the mouse behavior is kind of mirroring that. Motor behavior also wasn't affected. Now, the formalin test um, is a test whereby you have two phases. So if you look at panel G, again, we've got these three different groups, and it measures the animal's response in terms of shaking and licking to injection of formalin in the paw. And there's an acute phase, which happens in the first 10 minutes, and then a second phase, which happens kind of in the next kind of 20 minute to 60 minutes. And the acute phase is mainly thought to be just the acute activation of nociceptors, or those sensory neurons that respond to the formalin um, as it's injected into the skin. And the second phase, um, there's quite a lot of pharmacological data that actually that involves processing at a spinal level. And what was interesting to us is that in animals that either are haplosufficient or completely lack um, NCX3, you can see from this graph that they're showing much more pain-related behaviour. Um, and so, again, that is something of a mirror of the human data is that we know that sensitization, what we call central sensitization at the level of the spinal cord is important um, from previous data. And actually, we're seeing that indeed it is enhanced uh, in a dose dependent fashion with NCX3. Um, that's just quantified in panels uh, G to I. Um, we also looked at the pain rated behavior in the mouse after all neuropathic. Um, pain injury, um, and, and again, it, in the absence of NCX3, uh, it was this pain-related behaviour uh, was enhanced after in a nerve injury model, and that is shown in panel J. So this kind of, I guess, produces nice validation in a mouse uh, that what we've identified in human genetics does seem to be valid in terms of uh, a, a target that affects pain behaviour. And then we wanted to understand the mechanisms and now if you move um, to figure four, um, so sodium calcium exchanger, um, the clue is in the title. Uh, what this exchanger tends to do uh, is in the forward direction, if there's a lot of calcium um, within a neuron, uh, it will uh, export that calcium. It has a relatively high threshold and it uses the sodium gradient to do that. Um, so it's important for the homeostasis 
homeostasis of calcium um, within the neuron. Uh, that's the that's the general forward direction mode of this exchanger. There can be some subtleties is that if you were to massively sodium load a neuron, uh, then actually it may start working in the reverse direction. But let's stick with the forward direction for now. Um, and what we found is when we cultured dorsal horn neurons from mice lacking NCX3 versus the wild type, um, as I've said, it's a calcium exporter. Uh, and you can see if you lack NCX3, the baseline calcium is higher. And the response uh, to a depolarizing stimulus, which will normally raise calcium within the cell, is enhanced. And you can see that um, kind of there's some quantification here with kind of quantities uh, in a number of uh, different ways. Not only look at the peak, uh, but you can look at the area under the curve, but also you can look at the, as it were, the rate of decay. Um, and the rate of decay slows down. Um, as well as the peaks and the area under the curve being higher. And essentially what, what it's showing is kind of fits with what we would expect in the sense of the rate of removal of calcium from the neuron is slowed down uh, in the absence of functional NCX3. Uh, and I, I guess that's interesting because people hadn't really, you know, obviously people had thought that certain calcium exchanges may be important, but they hadn't really thought about this in relation to the dynamics of calcium responses uh, within dorsal horn neurons of the spinal cord. Um, and so this kind of was nice proof of concept in vitro um, that this is important in determining calcium responses in dorsal horn neurons. And something that the reviewers asked us to do, um, and actually it was a good question, it was it's something we've been trying to do for a while, and I have to say that, um, these experiments which are going to be shown in figure five uh, were really delayed by COVID because we've been trying to set this up for actually a couple of a couple of years with my collaborator Steve McMahon um, at King's, um, and it had been really tricky getting the mice to them and also just setting these up because of various COVID stops, stops and starts. Um, and actually, um, uh, I guess just in a bit of remembrance, so Steve McMahon was one of those mentors I was telling you about. He's a very good, uh, fantastic pain scientist and a very good mentor to me. And uh, he sadly died um, of, uh, of cancer um, whilst we were just completing these experiments. So this will sadly be the probably the last paper um, I ever publish uh, with Steve. But it was kind of a really nice piece of work to work with him on. Um, and Kim Chisholm, who is on this paper and really drove this work, did, did a fantastic job. So what we wanted to do is say, OK, we've got this data in vitro. What happens in vivo? I'm sure many of you know that the technology for uh, in vivo calcium imaging has massively advanced uh, over the last decade. Um, and Kim uh, nicely back-labeled projection neurons. So as I said, the final output of the spinal cord will be projection neurons that, that then project to higher centers. So she used an, uh, a virus to retrograde label them with uh, expressing GCAMP6, uh, which is a genetically encoded calcium indicator and can you know tell us about activity uh, within those neurons. Um, and the bottom line is, could we see the same um, enhanced kind of calcium levels uh, in vivo that we had previously demonstrated in vitro? And in short, the answer to that is uh, yes. Um, and actually, there were some very striking differences if you combine, if you compare the mutant, homozygous mutant mice to the wild type, if you just look at panel B, you can see much uh, stronger calcium response uh, within uh, those projection neurons. Um, and then that is kind of 
quantified with individual neurons shown in panel C and then a kind of uh, average response shown in panel D. Um, and you can see if you give repetitive electrical stimuli, you're seeing a much higher peak um, calcium response um, and uh, some slowing of the clearing of that calcium. And uh, that is uh, frequency uh, dependent. And that's really just shown um, in those traces in D and then the, the various uh, kind of average responses shown in F um, to the different frequency of uh, stimulation. Uh, there, there was a feeling as well that the kind of rate of rise uh, before it gets to a plateau was higher uh, in the mice lacking um, NCX3. So it was nice that we kind of really had a nice correspondence between what we'd seen with in vivo calcium imaging uh, with what we've previously shown in vitro. So um, the kind of next uh, part of this was obviously calcium imaging is helpful. Um, it will reflect what's going on in terms of neural activity, um, but it's not the same as measuring action potentials. Um, and Tony Dickinson and Ryan Patel have been collaborators for a long time. Uh, and um, we said, okay, so um, actually wind up was a term that had originally been coined by Pat Wall, as I've said, who was an electrophysiologist working on dorsal horn. And he, he had noted that you get this progressive increased response um, to uh, repetitive electrical stimuli uh, in the dorsal horn. Um, and first of all, we kind of in figure six, actually, th this is essentially uh, negative data, although it's data that we expected to be negative. And that was to say, if we give um, in panel A, uh, a mechanical stimulus, that's a von Frey hair at different strengths, do we see any difference in the number of action potentials when we compare wild type to heterozygotes or homozygotes? And the answer was no. And the kind of real traces are shown in panel B. Um, if we give a thermal stimulus, kind of going from kind of pleasant warmth to kind of unpleasantly painful heat, at least in the human, um, then uh, do we see increased action potential? And the answer was no. And again, that fits with the behavior, because if you remember the acute behavioral response to noxious mechanical thermal stimuli didn't change. Um, and the same with uh, brushing the skin that's shown in E, or using ethyl chloride to cool the skin, so cool responses, that's shown in G and H. Um, and again, no change in the receptive field. And again, you wouldn't expect the receptive field um, to get bigger. So the kind of acute responses weren't the same, but the key question is what happens when you give repetitive stimuli to kind of mimic this effect of wind-up? And that is shown now in the next figure, which is going to be figure seven. Um, and you know, this now is looking directly at wind up. So this is giving electrical stimulus to activate um, those receptors, those sensory neurons that, that respond to tissue injury, uh, and then measuring action potentials within dorsal horn neurons. Um, and I guess the in panel A, you, you can see it, it's kind of, you can see quite clearly that if you compare the, the 16th to the first stimuli, you are getting more action potentials, even in the wild type, um, although it's a small change in the wild type. But if you compare the heterozygote or homozygote mice, we see much more wind up with a huge number of ongoing uh, action potentials being fired and much more post-discharge uh, response in the mutant mice. Um, and we can really see very clear wind up, even at a frequency where wind up's pretty poor. And that I guess that's shown in the graph here where, again, it's quantifying the number of action potentials for each stimulus. And as you can see, 
there's a slight increase in the wild in the wild type, but there's a much bigger increase um, in these animals that are lacking um, NCX3, um, and that's just quantified. And we we tried to give repetitive stimuli at a very low frequency, which is 0.2 hertz. That's in the panel in A, and then we can increase the frequency, um, and that's the panel in B. And again, we're seeing more wind up um, even at this higher frequency um, in the mutant either heterozygote or homozygote mutant mice um, compared to wild type. So this is kind of a very nice electrophysiological correlate um, of what we've seen in the human psychophysics and also in the animal behavior. If you give repetitive stimuli, uh, probably because of that failure to clear calcium quickly enough, uh, you're getting a potentiation uh, of the response of dorsal horn neurons um, and you're getting more active potentials uh, and ultimately that is leading to a greater perception of pain. Uh, just to say again, it was a kind of, it was a reviewer's comment, it was a good reviewer's comment, and it relates to, uh, we're staying on figure seven panels E to G, and the reviewer's comment was, okay, so you've shown us that you projection neurons. So what's the kind of final output uh, of the spinal cord? Um, rather than just recording directly from dorsal horn neurons. And we could kind of answer that because um, you have something called the flexion reflex, which is if you give a noxious stimuli, ultimately you will activate motor neurons. Uh, and you can, I guess, see that as, as, the, as one measure of the output of this interneuron, interneuronal circuit that subserves pain. Um, and we could see again in the mutant mice that's shown in panel EFG. And again, maybe just look at the traces at the very bottom. Uh, you can see this huge potentiation of the flexion reflex, so the activity of motor neurons after giving uh, noxious stimuli um, in the NCX3 homozygote mutant mice. So the output, e even although you, we may get increased activity of both inhibitory and excitatory interneurons, overall, this is leading to more excitability uh, within these dorsal horn circuits. And then the end um, kind of figure which is in figure eight, would say, well, can we exploit this? We've shown that NTX3 is important for pain signaling within the spinal cord. Um, and we've shown that if you have less NTX3, the spinal cord is hyperexcitable and you see more temporal summation. So what about if we then increase NTX3 levels? Um, and the way we did that is we used a, a donor associated virus to express NTX3. And we used an isoform of NCX3 that's particularly highly expressed in the nervous system, in brain and spinal cord, that's NCX3B. And uh, we could then inject that into um, the spinal cord. So we just selectively increase NCX3 expression within spinal cord neurons. Um, and uh, we found that we've got nice expression. Um, as we would have expected, um, we weren't getting any change in acute pain behavior. And that's because, as you remember, we want to be looking at sensitized states. So we went back to that test of a sensitized pain state that I was talking about earlier, the formalin test, where you have this second phase that involves lots of sensitization at the level of the spinal cord. And we could then, uh, when we increase the levels of NCX3, so now what's happening in that is shipping more calcium out of the cell. Hopefully it's reducing that sensitization that happens uh, in the dorsal horn neurons. And in fact, we could see a nice effect on pain behavior, uh, particularly that second phase of the formalin that really relates to spinal sensitization. So what that tells you is actually this is an interesting treatment target that's kind of gone all the way from basic human genetics uh, now to testing efficacy um, in animal models. 
Um, I'm not saying <laughs> we would be injecting uh, a virus expressing NTX3 into humans. Ideally, what you might want to do is to see if you can find small molecules, for instance, that can increase the activity of this um, sodium calcium exchanger. Um, so yeah, we were, it's kind of, uh, human genetics doesn't always work out in uh, such a linear story of kind of going down to a target that you can test it in a mouse. Um, but this was one example that was kind of really fun to work on. And uh, for me, a great collaboration. And I hope I've emphasized that here between uh, lots of friends and collaborators in Colombia, uh, but also uh, actually uh, across Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly with uh, King's College London and UCL, and then with a great student at Oxford uh, called Theodora, uh, who kind of led uh, all the work as part of her PhD that she did with me uh, in Oxford. So happy to take any questions. Yeah, thank you so much for this really great presentation and for your work. Um, Katie. You go first. She's in Australia. It's 2 a.m., but she's too excited about the <laughs> talk of yours. So uh, please, Katie, go ahead first so you can go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Katerina. Hello, it's Katie. Dr. Bennett, what a fascinating conversation. I said at the beginning I was going to go to bed, but I just couldn't keep away. It was keeping up with your paper and your amazing um, talk. So just very briefly, I, um, I'm, I'm a geneticist. However, my work is usually in sharks. However, you know, I've worked with the human genetics lab and I have some health conditions um, personally that have drawn me into human genetics a lot more. And interestingly, one of the topics that I saw a specialist over the past few weeks and he was talking about the interaction with um, spinal or, you know, trauma injuries to the neck or spine and how that might interact with different genes. I can, you know, certainly send you those or put them in the chat, those genes, but it just, it sounds very um, relevant to my situation and many others around the world, how, you know, as you said, you know, with the effect of the spine and how that can interact with certain genes, um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. I understand you're working on mice models right now. Um, again, I can give you the, uh, I don't want to swear, <laughs> but Dennis knows we call it the, the M, it's MTHF, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sure, David, do you know, Dr. Bennett, do you know the gene I'm talking about? It sounds like the mother effigene. <laughs> um, but the interaction, no, but it's very interesting because, you know, the doctor and researchers that I am working with are finding a correlation with a gene and or s several genes, not just that one, genes and um, different you know, dysautonomia, different autoimmune diseases, um, and the correlation with also neck and back injuries. So it sounds so relevant. I'm going to stop rambling. As I said, please figure me. It's very late in the morning for me. Thank you. No, thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I think 
you know, there's going to be multiple genes that, that relate to pain. And, and some of those will definitely, their legs of activity will be the, the spinal cord. I think traditionally the human genetics of pain has been quite challenging, but partly um, actually just, I mean, because if you really want to do, look at say common genetic variants, you need really quite large cohorts of uh, participants. Um, and also they need to, the phenotyping for pain needs to be done really, really carefully. So I think it's kind of interesting that I would say pain genetics is probably um, a bit behind many other fields and that's because it's so, so challenging. But yeah, I completely agree. There's going to be multiple genes at the level uh, of the spinal cord that will be interacting uh, with spinal, spinal pain. And Katie, yeah, you definitely get the prize for staying up the latest, I think. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have two questions. One, I would like to ask for our friend that is not here that represents Galia. And um, then, um, so those, um, that factor is also expressed in Galia. I'm not sure um, in which regions, like if, um, you know, because Galia vary a lot depending on where they grow, basically. Uh, do you think there there is also um that glia also involved and um maybe are you planning or collaborating and looking into the glia involvement so i mean i think um glia undoubtedly have an important role in chronic pain and there's lots of uh, interest in neuropathic pain where there's you know people have shown direct evidence of uh, for instance microglia um, particularly in males actually um, sensitizing this this whole system. There's also data that astrocytes have, a, have an important role in chronic pain as well. Um, in our hands, the with the N with NTX3, we really see expression is much higher in neurons than glia. I'm not saying there's zero expression in glia, but it it's far more highly expressed in neurons than it is um, in glia in the spinal cord and in the peripheral nervous system. Again, we see it in neurons. We see it in sensory neurons, but we really see very little expression um, within glia. I guess there may be other brain regions where there is some expression in glia, but I, I, you know, I, I have not done a kind of comprehensive analysis of the whole um, central nervous system. And the, the regions in, involved in pain processing, we really just see it um, within within neurons. There are other isoforms of sodium calcium exchanger and they, they might you know so for instance ntx1 tends to be more uh, ubiquitous so so that again might be another avenue uh, to look at yeah thank you and um my question was do you see um big differences between or are there any differences between male and female what i'm asking is not the guest speaker here a uh, few like maybe a couple months ago and that I looked at kcc um and kcc um receptor involved yeah. and there was like um you know a big difference between male and female um so so is this is this a pathway basically um independent from hormones maybe Sure. So, I mean, I think it's a really important point for pain research. And, and, you know, I think we've all learned in the field that there can be important sex specific uh, effects on, on pain. 
And I mentioned one of them earlier, which is that microglia seem to have a much bigger role of neuropathic pain in males than they do in females mice. For this data, we, we did do some comparison and we see the same um, in the human genetics, we see the same effect in uh, males and females. So it's not kind of sex specific at a human genetic level. And in the mice, we see very similar responses in male and female mice. So for this particular target, we don't see sex specific effects, but it's a really good point. Pretty much in all, uh, whenever you're looking in pain, you need to kind of look at some of the gender uh, sex differences. That's really interesting. And do you see, so if there are huge individual differences and calcium kind of lingers longer, um, is there any like a comorbidity of epilepsy or maybe higher or lower, you know, prone to have migraines, ADHD, you know, is there any yeah. very pain specific? That That's interesting. Um, so in, I mean, in the humans, you've got to remember is what you're doing with human genetics is you're looking at quite subtle effects. So uh, we're, the SNPs that we saw were intronic SNPs that are probably having very subtle effects on expression. This is not like, so in a way with the mouse, we're taking a kind of extreme example where we're kind of completely ablating um, that gene. Uh, in the mice, actually, we don't see any evidence of epilepsy, but, you know, it's a, it's a good question. You would worry about hyperexcitability at other levels. People have looked a bit um, in the CNS of the mice, um, and th there are some um, effects on learning memory and LTP. So I do think it's likely to be impacting on, um, in the absence of NCX3, it's likely to be impacting on other uh, populations. Um, for, for that reason, I, th I think it, you, you're right in a sense, it probably does have effects on excitability in other neuronal populations. And that that would be a risk of trying to modulate this pathway as a kind of therapy, um, that there would be a risk that you might get CNS um, side effects. And, you know, we see that with other treatments that are used for pain. So you just need to bear that in mind. Unless you use the robots that we had the guest speaker on Monday, <laughs> we had the guest speaker from Japan. He used um, micro robots, like he invented micro robots that you can um, activate and deactivate with different types of lights. So you can make them. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's so cool. So you can make them. Uh, and they are trying now um, to see if the delivery works in cells too. Uh, so they, with one type of light, you make them pack up uh, any type of stuff that you want. Like they just use tiny plastics. And then uh, with a UV light, you can tell them, okay, now release it. And so you could do that very specific, especially in the spine. Could you use that? That cool. Maybe you can collaborate with him and try it in the mice. I can send you his contact. He's really nice. Um, Anyways, I want to give the stage to everyone else to ask questions. Um, I saw Dr. Mariam and Mike, and then everyone else, go ahead. Thank you. Hey, Katerina. Uh, hey, Dr. Bennett. Thank you. Thank you so much for such a great talk. It's nice to have you over. So I had a, a few questions, but while you and Katerina have been talking, she's actually covered some of my questions and you actually inadvertently answered some of them. So um, I wanted to go back to um, when you first did your linkage studies. Um, 
I think you said that was in Colombia. Yeah. Um, so one of my first questions was when you were um, measuring for pain thresholds in different people, how were you controlling for that? And how were you actually measuring it? Um, so I, I guess one thing to say is for this particular measure, um, it's not a pain threshold in the sense that we're giving a stimulus that we know is painful um, and then we repeat that. And what we're measuring is how the pain perception increases with repetitive stimuli. Um, the It's a good question is kind of how we control in the sense that we did a lot of training with, um, we were very um, lucky in in Colombia to be working with, um, dent actually he was trained as a dentist, Luis uh, uh, Aristogueta, who, uh, who in the end ended up doing quantitative sensory testing on uh, almost 2000 people. <laughs> um, and one of the advantages was that actually he pretty much ended up doing all of the phenotyping himself. So he became incredibly standardized. And we did kind of have sessions where we taught him very carefully how to do this. And then we would monitor the data very carefully. Um, and we would kind of follow the data over time. And uh, the other thing that was important was that for our participants, we made sure it was people that were healthy that they didn't have any conditions that, you know, for instance, it wouldn't have been fair if someone was, say, suffering from fibromyalgia, it would have completely uh, kind of, their results would have been very different from uh, people that don't have any comorbid medical conditions. So we we had healthy participants um, that were not on any medication that may change their, their pain responses. So we did try and think carefully. Uh, and we also tended to have um, younger people because also you understand that your pain responses will change um, radically you know between the age of 20 and say 70 so what we tended to have in fact was really healthy students at the University of Antioquia that that was by far the biggest participant group that we had uh, we had a quiet room we had controlled the temperature so we we're really trying to keep everything as standardized as possible um, and to use our healthy participants That's great, thank you. And then um, one more question, uh, and that would be, what would, you know, the, the potential like targeted therapies um, based on this discovery be, would they kind of be universal for all, or would they be more like um, patient tailored based on their genotype? Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, th I think so. Really, I think the genetic part was just a lead in to find this target. I don't think there's any evidence that, um, uh, in fact, you would say from the kind of mouse data where we've just kind of done a quite a blunt experiment of either removing NTX3 or increasing level of NTX3, um, we were seeing efficacy on pain. So I don't think we'll be personalizing our therapy. Um, to genotype, I think our prediction would be is it would work on pretty much anyone uh, in theory. Uh, there is always this thing is that, you know, if what conditions might we find it to be particularly helpful in? Um, well, we, we've shown on the animal models that it seems to be efficacious in a model of inflammatory pain and a model of, of neuropathic pain. So I guess those would things to be think about in human populations. I think one advantage of it kind of potentially, and 
it's obviously early days, but potentially, you know, modulating this this gene as a therapy um, is that as I've kind of been at kind of pains to point out, it doesn't seem to change your acute pain thresholds. It really seems to be important in sensitized pain. Of course, that's good because you pain has a protective function in healthy people. It's just where it becomes chronic, persistent pain that is problematic. So it may not be that we want to get rid of pain completely in people. We want to dial it down um, so that it becomes more tolerable. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Bennett. Um, yeah, that's my, uh, I'm, I'm done with my questions if anyone else wants to go. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, hi, Doctor, it's me again. Um, thank you so much for that incredible talk and um, your marginally answer a lot of my questions I had for you as well and your terrific answers. Uh, one thing I was wondering is more of a general thing. Um, when you're talking about pain, it was just making me think, um, is there a way at all that you can measure like how intense a, a pain thing is neurologically, like how intense the stimuli is, the signal is going up the nervous system. Um, and then is there a, a way for you to kind of um, see how people, different people respond to that? Like I'm, I'm more thinking of people's pain thresholds. Um, you know, some people can seem to tolerate a lot more pain than other people. Yeah. And in that, I was also wondering as well as a side thing as well, is there, is there any kind of direct correlation or supposed direct correlation with uh, pain to damage? Like a cut should only cause a small amount of pain, but it malfunctions if it's a lot of pain and so on. Th thank you very much. Um, so I, I think one of the things that's interesting about pain is, is ultimately it's a kind of subjective um, experience. And, and you know, although we can say, for instance, report of how much pain we're experiencing in terms of say a numerical rating scale it, it's still very personal and um, subjective having said that um i guess some of the techniques used in quantum sensory testing is you're giving a very well-defined stimulus so you can kind of have a lot of control on the stimulus that you give uh, and people will then report what they perceive in response to that stimulus people have kind of tried to come up with ways to get more objective evidence of what's going on in the, as it were, the pain pathway. And, you know, you can, for instance, um, and it's difficult, but you can put very small electrodes with micronography into people's nerves and measure activity in nociceptors. Um, I guess one of the kind of very popular ways of looking at the brain has been functional brain imaging, and that's had a huge impact on the pain field. Um, and, you know, broadly, um, there will be a relationship between the pain that someone reports um, and the uh, activity um, in brain imaging uh, across multiple uh, kind of brain regions that are involved in nociceptive processing. I mean, one of the interesting things is there's not kind of one center for pain in the brain. It's a very much a, a distributed cortical network. Uh, some areas more involved in sensory discriminative pathways, uh, some in more the kind of more effective, as it were, the real hurt um, that lies uh, behind pain. Um, so that gives us more information about, you know, the processing of nociceptive information in, in the brain. Um, I still think ultimately brain imaging has not replaced self-report pain. It's still a, a uh, very much a subjective uh, experience.
I think that's quite a long answer to quite a complex question, Jamie. I hope it answers it. Uh, no, no, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult thing, right? That, that was what I was thinking about was um, it's so difficult to know how much is too much and it's different for different people. But the the other part of that was, um, is there, do you have a standard like model in your sort of workings or whatever that, that says the signal should be so strong versus so much damage? And then anything oh, so, outside so I think one, one thing is, so, yeah, I mean, the... In these experiments on healthy volunteers, we're not we're not causing damage, by the way. So we're we 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 might be giving a mechanical probe, but actually, with our ethics and everything, we're we're, we're never going to cause skin damage. And the same with the temperature stimuli that we give, they they evoke pain, but uh, we we're, they're way below what you would need to cause, for instance, a burn. Ah, okay. Um, so so we we're, we're not causing damage to people, um, and the. One thing, though, that is interesting and is well known in the pain field, if you start looking at clinical pain states, um, although there may be, you know, the, the relationship between tissue injury and pain, again, in the same way as your basic pain thresholds vary between people, that also varies massively uh, between people and also depends on on context. Um, you know, there's lots of stories of people, say, in uh, very stressful situations in war, losing a leg and saying it's not painful um and, and you know so so it will vary between people and it will massively vary on context and again that's what makes pain interesting um and i haven't had time to talk about it but there's a whole um the, the brain in a way selects what signals are coming up from the spinal cord so depending on your mood how well you've slept your attentional pathways um your basic brain circuitry Actually, there's a, a what's called a descending pain modulation system that has a powerful effect on the um, spinal cord. So it's not there's no simple relationship between the information coming in and the pain that you perceive. It's an incredibly complex but also interesting circuit. Ah, thank you very much. And uh, no, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't in meaning that you were causing damage. I was more thinking of pain in general. Um, thank you very much for your answer, yeah. doctor. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, does anyone else have questions? So Sirahim, Gilbert, uh, Dennis, Victoria, go, go ahead if you have a question. I mean, uh, a lot of my questions have already been asked, so that's great. <laughs> also, I didn't, I, I think I heard you mention that um, you had a hard, hard stop, um, Katarina, so I didn't want to push the time too much, but yeah, I definitely, um, in general, satisfied with the questions that have been asked. So thank you everyone for asking such wonderful questions. All right, Dr. Bennett, uh, um, what, what did you have to um, go? I think I remember you said that you kind of have to stop at an hour. So I want to check in with you. I probably need to go soon because my kids are just getting back from school. So I could take one more question. Otherwise, I, I am going to shoot off soon. If there's a burning question that anyone has, now is the time to answer it. Ask it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So my my question is: Are there um, maybe drugs that are already targeting um, this specific uh, pathway? Are you like uh, developing maybe one in the future? Uh, what's next, basically? Yeah. So good. Good question. So um, there's no drugs targeting this 
um, molecule at the moment. And one of the problems, and I'm not sure I have the solution, is that in terms of small molecules, it's very hard to target <clears throat> NCX3 uh, without targeting the other sodium calcium exchanges. Although it's theoretically possible with structural modeling, it's quite challenging. Um, and that will be something we'll kind of be looking at in the future, because really what you would want is a selective activator of NCX3. Other opportunities would be to kind of take a kind of more gene therapy approach. Um, and again, that's something that we're thinking about. And, and in the pain field, we are seeing, you know, gene therapy is making progress and kind of things I wouldn't have thought uh, possible 10 years ago are now um, becoming possible. So, so again, that's something that we'll, we'll be looking at in the future as well. Well, great. Uh, I wish you all the funding and the best of luck for developing this because I think it's very important and a lot of people are waiting for big breakthroughs in this field. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very important. So yeah, um, thank you so much for coming and sharing your work and answering our questions. Um, we really appreciate it. And um, yeah, maybe if you have some updates, uh, you can, you would like to come back and and share some more with us again. This was, um, you know, a great honor to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Katarina. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invite. It's been nice to meet you all. Uh, thanks for the thoughtful questions. It's been fun to talk about the the work, and um, I, I wish you know, wish you luck with with the platform, which seems to work very well. So, so thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we have been having really interesting talks from all over the world in all kinds of fields. <laughs> You know, biology to to neuroscience to like more direct medical stuff. And yeah, it has been great. So thank you for being part of this journey. So we really appreciate it. And thank it's you everyone. Yeah. And thank you everyone for coming, asking questions and uh, for being interested. If you like discussions like these, uh, join the club, then um, Science Society. And we will have tonight at 9 p.m. EST, uh, Dr. Congreve coming um, from Stanford University. Um, he will talk about this cool new technology of 3D printing with light converting nanoparticles. So uh, that will be a really cool tech um, room. And then tomorrow we have Dr. Santos. She is... Um, offspring from James Tour Lab. She did this work in his lab um, and she worked on light activated antibacterial molecular machines. So it's tiny molecular robots that can target uh, bacteria that are antibiotic resistant and that's a uh, really interesting work. And then tomorrow, uh, next week I'm kind of on vacation uh, so there will be less um, going on, but we will still have a room on Tuesday about uh, climate uh, fuel burning uh, room and uh, how uh, different le gas levels are changing in the atmosphere. This is focused on helium levels. And then on Wednesday, July 6th, we'll have Dr. Maldonado uh, talking about food addiction, vulnerabilities and microRNA signatures. And Dr. Spontag um, will come back. I don't know if you remember him. He was here like a couple of months ago. He will talk all about self-disinfecting ion, 
anionic polymers um, that attacks all kinds of germs. And actually Delta Airlines started actually using his very recent research already to make our flights safer during COVID time. So it will be really interesting. So yeah, that's a preview. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, David. It was a great pleasure and honor. And enjoy the rest of your day, morning, and sleep well, Katie. <laughs> bye, everyone. See you all. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Doctor. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you bye. so much. Thanks. Bye.